Hello and welcome to Learning from Legends with me, Peter Switzer. And today we have two very interesting guests. The first is a well-known person, David Scasebrook. He's the co-founder and managing partner of Quinbrook. Now, Quinbrook is a company that really has got right into the cutting edge of investing you know, for the future in terms of ESG, um, renewables, and all the sorts of things that are becoming increasingly popular since the Glasgow Conference on Climate Change. And a lot of people are starting to wonder, where can I invest? Listening to David will give you lots of ideas of what are going to be the growth businesses and sectors going forward. I found it a very, very interesting interview. And then I talked to Helen Tarrant, and Helen owns a company called Unicorn Commercial Property, and she's a specialist buyer agent for commercial properties at a time when commercial properties are doing really well, particularly because of the coronavirus, which has driven lots of workers back to their homes and back to the suburbs on a daily basis. And it partly explains why it's very hard to get a coffee early in the morning in the suburbs, much easier in the city nowadays at the CBD, because there are a lot less people clamoring, demanding coffee in the CBDs compared to the suburbs. So what's the outlook for commercial property prices? Helen Tarrant has a really good take on that. So without any further ado, let's kick off and meet David Scasebrook from Quinbrook. So David, thanks for joining us. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Tell us about Quinbrook. We're a specialist investment manager. Uh, we only focus on developing and investing in renewable energy, battery storage, and sort of grid support infrastructure. And we do that really only in three markets, the UK, the United States, and Australia. Okay. Um, how long have you been going for? Uh, Quinbrook was founded in 2015. Uh, my partner and I have been investing in power for the last 30 years and renewables for just over 20. Okay. So um, I have done reading which indicates that you're an investment fund. Mm. Um, can the general public invest in Quinbrook? No. No, we, we uh, manage only wholesale institutional capital for mostly pension funds and large insurance institutions. Uh, mostly drawn from the UK, Australia and, and the United States. So, um, you know, we are sort of a specialist infrastructure manager. We're, we're regulated, obviously, in each of our jurisdictions, uh, but we're not, you can't access our funds as a retail investor. Hmm. So, um, but do you invest in publicly listed companies or private companies? So we invest in private companies and also private assets, if you like. So, you know, we directly own a lot of the infrastructure assets, but we also invest in businesses that develop and construct those assets, but it's all privately or unlisted asset. It falls into the unlisted asset class. Okay. Um, is, is there a, a well-known name of any kind that you, you have a, an investment in that people listening to this would say, oh yeah, I know that company. <laughs> Well, we've got a joint venture with Tesla, which is a fairly known, well-known, yeah, uh, well-known well brand. Yeah. So one of our businesses here in Australia, uh, I mean, the US is our number one market, but here in Australia, we we are invested in a business called Energy Locals, uh, which is a green energy retailer, and they have a joint venture with Tesla in South Australia. 
that is uh, trying to create the largest, what we call a virtual power plant. So aggregating all of their solar rooftops and their residential home batteries and managing them as, as really as a, single, uh, as a single customer or load. So it's a fairly innovative project. I think it's the largest project of its kind in the world at the moment. It's not the big battery that we can't go. Well, no. Yeah. That, no. That was a Tesla South Australian thing as well, wasn't it? Yeah, there's one in Hornsdale and there's another one in Victoria. Um, but I think, yeah, the big, big battery that was got so much publicity is in South Australia. Yeah. Do, do you suspect some of the organisations that you are invested in will become listed one day? Uh, look, yes, it's possible. I, I think, you know, there have been a couple of examples in the US uh, more recently where some of the businesses doing the types of things that, that, that we're active in have listed on the public markets. Um, to give you an example, Fluence uh, was a company that recently uh, floated on the, on the New York market that specializes really in um, you know, customer sided energy solutions using battery storage as well as artificial intelligence. So it's, a, it's an interesting business, uh, very robust valuation um, in the market, very well received in the retail market. You know, we've seen uh, listed renewable energy trusts in the UK, such as Greencoat. Uh, we we've, we've, don't have a lot of that equivalent here in Australia. We don't have really many listed infrastructure assets that focus only really on on renewable energy or the energy transition, I think we probably will see more of that uh, as we go. But, um, you know, Australia is still a relatively small market in the overall scheme of things when you compare it to a market like the United States. It's not surprising that there's a greater diversity of investment product uh, in the US market. How big is the investing theme in ESG type products mm. and, and businesses that you're involved in. How big is it now and, and how big will it be in the future? I know it's a hard question, but someone's going yeah. to ask. Yeah, look, I think, you know, we um, come at that entirely from uh, the wholesale or, or unlisted asset creation side. And so the, the ESG element or dimension to what we do is pervasive and holistic across everything we do. And the reason we say that is our business is creating new infrastructure. So naturally we create jobs, we buy a lot of plant and equipment, we stimulate demand, we, we create benefits for local communities. That's something that is intrinsic to the nature of building new infrastructure, but with the, the significance and, and the importance attached to ESG these days, we now measure it and we pay a lot more time and attention into measuring things that we did anyway for many, many years, but we didn't measure them as forensically as we do now. And so our investors want to know exactly what the measurable impacts are uh, and they want that reported. Um, and so there's another layer that's, that's created in data gathering and measurement that, uh, that we're doing these days the, the underlying nature of what we do hasn't changed, but the measurement of the impact has. Um, I'm sure people listening to this uh, would have this question. Hmm. Um, have I missed the boat in investing in battery technology and the companies that are in there? 
Um, and if not, has the market got ahead of itself? And, mm. yeah, yeah, and I know this is not necessarily what you would be concerned about on a day-to-day -day basis for your yes. business. Yes. But because you have expertise in this, mm. your, your candid views on the subject would be you know, appreciated by people who are thinking, thinking to themselves, well, I know it's going to be big because we've seen the predictions for electric vehicles. They're going to be big. Yes. But has the market got ahead of itself? What's your non-advice view on, on the subject? Yeah. <laughs> well, advice. look, you know, the comments I'd offer in relation to that is that we're only really at the very beginning of the deployment of, of battery storage uh, globally. Um, and what we, uh, in our view, what we see today as the dominant products or battery chemistries are not necessarily going to be, it's certainly not the only food on the menu. We're going to see a very quick and rapid evolution in different batteries for different applications. And, you know, there may be up to 10 different use cases for, for batteries that evolve over time. Uh, but they're going to be a much much more diverse choice. So definitely have not missed the boat. This is a this is a par five when it comes to battery storage. We're really only on the T uh, in in the relative um, place in the analogy, and it's going to be a theme that is going to continue for a long time. If you a good way to think about this is electricity. Ever since it was invented has been a commodity that's had to be consumed the split second that it's manufactured. And if it's not consumed immediately, it, it, it disappears. Batteries mean that for the first time ever, you can store it and it doesn't have to be consumed immediately. And that is a very, very significant game changer because it means like some of the projects we're involved in, we overproduce solar power during the day and we charge the battery with that solar power so that it's fully charged. So when the sun sets, we then discharge that battery between let's say 5 p.m. at night and 8 p.m. at night, which is really when people are coming home, their electricity use is, is we call it the evening peak. So to be able to shift solar from the middle of the day when it's plentiful, to be able to use it in the early evening is only made possible by battery storage. And that's just one example of just how fundamental that shift is. And, and if we look at the level of battery penetration in power markets, it's negligible. It almost doesn't register. And when you look at the power that it, that the power of it to do that sort of time shifting, hopefully you can appreciate that we're really just at the very front end of it. Hmm. What, what publicly listed or well-known company is really the market leader at this point in time. Because we know Tesla's certainly the market leader in electric vehicles, and it's also a battery company as well. Mm -hmm. But is, is it the market leader, do you think, uh, David, or is there another company out there that's uh, you know, a more, probably a more significant market um, player? Yeah, so if, you, uh, if you're looking at listed stocks, I mean, if you're looking at battery manufacturers, I mean, the leading battery manufacturers in the world, are predominantly Chinese and Korean. Um, also, the, the Japanese Panasonic, um, LG Chem, um, uh, and you have BYD and you have CATL. Um, CATL is a major supplier to Tesla, and so Tesla is a reuser 
of CATL batteries in many cases, um, but they're refining them and improving them and putting their own, you know, uh, wrapper around them, if you like. Uh, but they're by, they're listed in China. So uh, if if it's the manufacturing of batteries that you're seeking access to, it's those sort of companies in Korea and and China. We are going to see some interesting U.S. manufacturing stories start to emerge. I mean, there are a couple that are listed right now, like EOS, for example, that's listed in, in New York, is a manufacturer of a new type of battery technology. Uh, there are others like ESS, which is, which is a, um, it's a different type of battery technology. Um, again, so there's a couple uh, that are, if you like, fledgling companies in the sector. That are listed in the U.S. and and uh, and in and China and Korea. Hmm. Um, once again, uh, this is not advice, but it's great having someone like <laughs> certainly not advice. <laughs> no, it's great having someone like you who understands the industry <clears throat> hmm. from its infancy, watching it grow, um, telling us it's going to have a a really um, multifaceted future. It's not going to be what it's not going to be. It's not going to grow in a linear fashion. There'll be lots of offshoots, and some will be stronger than others, and some will be better than others. Indeed. Uh, and I know when people ask me about artificial intelligence or machine mm. learning, uh, I, I often say, well, it's really hard to pick the winner. So maybe you're better off being in an ETF which has a, a whole lot of potential players, and out of them, two or three of the twenty might mm. become fantastic players. If if a, if a a nephew, cousin, brother, son, uncle, grandfather asks you what's the best way of playing this future, would you would you say looking at an ETF that has a lot of these companies in them might be the better way or, or probably the safer way of playing the future when it comes to battery and lithium and things like that? Well, you know, if I was going to say. After I after I read a random walk down Wall Street, I was pretty convinced about ETFs, my own personal portfolio. But I would say, you know, the way we would look at it at the moment is it, it's so early and embryonic in in the industry's evolution to try to pick winners. You know, this early in in the game, this is a very, as I said, this is a very long energy transition that we're in right now. And there will be winners and losers like any industry that's evolving so rapidly and so profoundly. And, you know, if, if it's listed stocks that are out there, um, you know, for, from the fact that there is e even ETF products available that can give you that diversification, that is a, certainly a, a good sort of diversification strategy to play the thematic. And I think in thematic, I'm not an investment advisor by any means, but the idea that you can play a thematic through an ETF, if clean energy or whatever it is, was where you thought there was going to be a significant amount of growth, that's not a bad way to do it, um, given, you know, you, you need a lot of information. And even as an industry expert in the power sector, even we shy away from trying to pick the winners and the losers, right, um, at this particular point, because we also see some of the evolution when we're talking to the manufacturers who we engage with we ask them questions about what are they doing in their r d labs you now what is it they're working on today for 2025 and 2026 and you know and i explained this 
just the other day to some of our other investors is I've been in this industry 30 years. There's never been so many moonshots going on at the same time in energy technology, if you want to liken it to vaccine, the intense you know, amount of human ingenuity and money that went into very rapid vaccine uh, R&D to get us a, a workable product. A similar, it's not exactly analogous, but a similar multiple moonshot activity is going on in energy technology, mm. whether it's long duration battery storage, whether it's better solar modules, whether it's nuclear fusion, any of, any of these activities is attracting so much effort uh, and money that that landscape is incredibly dynamic. And so in the next five years, our general view in the next five years, we are going to be overwhelmed with the advances that we see. You know, it's simply as a byproduct of the amount of time and, in, and, and human effort that's going into it. And, and that will be a very positive thing. And in that, in that respect, the emphasis that's been placed on technology as part of the answer, it's not a panacea, but as part of the answer is a right, is a right, is a proportional emphasis because so much is happening that we will get breakthroughs and they will be game changers, mm. but it's not the only thing that's going to sort of pluck us out of the, uh, out of the climate resolution, but it's a very, it is a very significant component on it. Yeah. It's funny, I, I see exactly the same thing on a, a Sky News uh, news program when they're asking me a, about you know, the Prime Minister's uh, reliance on technology. Mm. And, and I, I did use exactly the same analogy you use. That the, I, I was told by medical experts, uh, people who knew that we have to wait maybe two or three years for a vaccine. Mm. But I, I, I know as an economist that the, the more money gets thrown at the problem, the bigger the problem, the more money, you, you can be staggered at how quickly solutions come along the, the line. And, and so my next question to you then is, do you think a part of the, the future solution will be possibly safe nuclear? you know that is the um i'd say that's the biggest conundrum that is out there because at the moment at the moment those that are constructing replacement nuclear capacity even in the uk will tell you it's safe hmm. right and there's a correlation between how safe it is and how much it costs hmm. and if and the united kingdom has since the second world war had about 20% of its total electricity capacity was from nuclear. Now, those nukes are getting very old. And so from a UK energy policy perspective, they decided that, you know what we'll do? We'll replace the 20% we already have with brand new technology that's safer. And safety was its predominant mm -hmm. rationale, right? And unfortunately, what's happened is in the process of constructing those projects, Several of them have been abandoned, and the one that was committed to is run over by probably 300% in its, in its cost projection. So it can be incredibly safe. It's also incredibly expensive. And we're not even talking about the life cycle cost of having to manage the waste safely. And, and that's hugely expensive. And, and so the, the, the real question is, it's, if, you, if you are only looking at one dimension that said, do we have a 24-7 solution for zero carbon-free electricity? 
Yes, we do. It's nuclear power. <laughs> um, does it work cost effectively in a power market where solar is so cheap and we may get long duration battery storage that you know can maybe in the next five years deliver 24 seven? By the time, so our, our belief, and it, look, it's a hunch, is that within five years, we'll have long duration storage options that give us 24 seven from carbon free renewables that will be significantly cheaper than, than a nuclear option, mm. even if it's safe. Mm. So just on economics and finance, it'll, it won't necessarily be competitive, mm. right? Yep. Tell us, what, what is the, the most impressive local solar company? Is, you know, obviously, you, you know the companies that are out there doing things, researching, trying to, to participate in that solution you're talking about collecting the solar energy, then storing it in, in, uh, in a very good battery solution. What, what are the impressive local companies doing this? Well, I think there's sort of the way to think about, you know, solar in Australia, at least the way we do, is the sort of two levels at which it's undertaken in Australia. It's done at the very large utility scale level. So these are very large solar projects that are, you know, out in the Darling Downs or out in Western New South Wales or wherever they may be, usually in, in rural areas where there's a lot of cheap flat land, high solar radiation, Mildura's one, it was early in Victoria. Um, and there's not a lot of that that is accessible to retail investors, hmm. right? They're just not. And there was a couple in, and I don't even know the names of them, they weren't, they never really took off as, as, as opportunities for, for listed sort of investment product. A lot of the big solar developers are, you know, supported by the likes of AGL in their Powering Australia Fund, um, or QIC is a big investor in it. But again, these are wholesale institutions investing in unlisted assets. There are some companies that are doing smaller scale solar that are doing it at a what we call a distributed level or behind the meter level. So these are solar projects on top of shopping centers, hospitals, universities, and they're, they're, we call them distributed energy solutions. We think that business has so far to grow because if it's, if it's cheaper to put a solar panel on your roof and generate it yourself, Aussies will do that. Mm -hmm. That's why we have the highest solar penetration of rooftop solar of anywhere in the world, mm. right? Because it just, I mean, yes, it was supported in the early days, but these days our electricity prices are so expensive. It just makes sense when we've got such a sunny country that we do. Um, so I think there's a couple of companies that you'll probably see coming to market. Um, there's very few, if any, I can think of right now, quite frankly, that are listed at all. I know of a few that are unlisted that might become listed at one stage, you know, in the future. Um, we're working with a company right now called Verdia um, that does this for, you know, the likes of Scott, uh, Stockland and Ramsey Health and, and, and Coca-Cola. And so they provide them with, you know, distributed energy solutions to cut down on, their, on the amount of grid power that they buy and produce their solar on site. They're, again, an unlisted local private company uh, doing a really good work, right? Mm. 
but eventually these companies will come to the public markets once they've got a, a sufficient amount of scale, turning over enough money to justify a public listing. So I think, again, going back to the question, have investors, retail investors missed the boat? Not, no, not even close. I mean, there's, there's a lot more of these businesses that will grow significantly in the next few years, I think, that, that will come onto the boards. Hmm. So what, what do you think is going to be the, the big game changer for the industry? Like, or, or are we seeing it? But, uh, the fact that even uh, a conservative um, Australian government hmm. is now realising they have to embrace um, many of the demands have come out of Glasgow. Um, is this the start of something really big in terms of both government support for alternative energy solutions, as well as big company, um, you know, funding for these yeah. kinds of solutions? Yeah. Look, I think you you know you hit the nail on the head. I mean, in the in the wake of in the wake of what was an underachievement at COP26, I don't doesn't matter what gloss you put on it. Uh, it was an underachievement, right? But but we've been guilty in Australia for of too much inertia waiting on government action at a time when renewables just can stand on their own. I mean, they are where they are because governments supported them in the early days. But we're at a point now that they don't need that support. I, I agree with Angus Taylor. Solar does not need government support to be a compelling wealth, robust financially returning investment. And it's private capital, whether it's mum and dad buying a solar system for their own home or industry deciding that they're going to put solar and batteries at their factory or big pension funds saying, you know what, we're going to put a billion dollars to work in clean energy in the next three years, which a lot of them have said they're going to do. That's at the end of the day, the game changer. That's the, it's private capital that's changing the game. It isn't governments. Hmm. Governments are kind of in the way at the moment more than anything because they're creating confusion, right? If you're, if you're an economist, you'll understand, you know, pr pricing signals are very compelling for human behavior and, and the pricing signals for renewables are very compelling without any form of government help or subsidy. Um, fortunately, because of the help that they did give them you know, many, many years ago, but we don't need that anymore. Um, all we need right now is is non-interference mm -hmm. and, and let the private markets do their thing. Well, given everything you've said and everything you've alluded to about our future, why, why doesn't Quinbrook actually have a retail fund to provide an opportunity for lots of retail investors <laughs> who would love, who would love to have... Uh, an investment slash punt on a, an ESG big tick future? Well, I think, you know, um, yeah, it was answer the first question. We're only six years old, Peter. So, yeah, maybe we, when, we, uh, when we mature as, as a business, that's something that we, that we will do. I mean, there are, you know, managers like, like us um, that, that do have listed products um unfortunately not in australia yet um they might uh, but but again like i said before i think there will be um more products coming to the market so that so that people can access them either directly or through a growing family of etfs so i'd say you know this is this is the thematic of our times mm. you know the energy transition and 
all of the bits and pieces that sit within it is the thematic of our times. And, and even the other industry sectors that you choose, whether you want to talk about green hydrogen, you want to talk about green data centers, you want to talk about green steel and green aluminium, well, all of that as industry verticals, which drive most of our economy, it all depends on one thing to be green and that's renewable energy. And so otherwise it isn't by definition anything. And so when you look at all the, the demand factors that are, that are really underpinning the robustness of renewable energy investing, it's, it's extraordinary. And, and so all of that is going to produce a hell of a lot of investment and it's going to produce a lot of investment product. And a lot of that will end up on the list of markets. Yeah. David, thanks for joining us and thanks for giving us the insights and, I think most of us who are listening to you will go off and try and find a company that will be <laughs> on the future we've been talking about. Excellent. Great, Peter. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Well, joining me now is Helen Tarrant of a buying agency for commercial property called Unicorn Commercial Property. Thanks for joining coming on the program, Helen. Thanks, Peter. Now, before we start talking about commercial property, You've had a very unusual road to commercial property. You know, you studied law at uni, then got into beauty salons, then got into commercial property. So as um, a famous politician once said, please explain. Well, I always say that the um, the Asian parents are very smart. They're like, why would you need to have more kids when you can have one and realise both your dreams? <laughs> and that's really how it came about. Uh, my mother, well, no, we're first generation migrants. My mother came out here when I was seven with $70 on her. And she was adamant that you needed a trade to survive in Australia. She said, you need a trade to always fall back on. Yeah. And dad was very much, you need to go to university, get your degrees, you know, get your job and, and everything like that. So when I got into uni, mum was like, well, what about your trade? So <laughs> I was like, well, I don't have a trade. And looking around, I thought, well, at uni, I'm doing, I was doing business and law. And I thought, well, one of the things to do is to actually practice some of these principles. I'm learning about business in a business of my own. So I looked around and it seemed like beauty therapy was the, the right business to be in when you're a solo operator starting out. And it's not too onerous in terms of the setup cost. And you can start out on your own and then add to it. So that's how I started to learn the beauty therapy trade. And I always have a laugh with my clients when I was in beauty therapy. I can always say to them, well, I can give you skincare advice or I can give you legal advice. Which one would you like? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's good. That's a, a really good uh, way to increase your database of customers. But did you eventually actually own or rent or own a commercial property that you ran a beauty salon out of? Yeah, I did. Uh, so I started out with uh, just renting a space out of a hairdressing salon, like most beauty therapists when they start out. So, you know, it's just not your own space. Uh, and then I went and had my, a couple of other actually salons. So we rented, became tenants in and had a first hand dealing with some of some landlords, some challenging landlords mm-hmm. um, in our time. And I was in the beauty therapy space for probably about 16 years. So okay. I dealt with multiple landlords. Uh, then, you know, also bought our own premise that I operated our beauty college out of. So I uh, went through the whole, the whole process. And I guess when I started as a tenant, I realised I really want to be on the other side. Mm, okay. So, um, so you, you got first-hand experience of commercial property. When did you decide that there was a, a potential business in 
being a buyer's agent in this space? I actually never set out to be a buyer's agent. And when I set out in 2016 with a course on commercial property, it was just about educating everyday Australians on how to invest in commercial. Because what I realised when I first started getting into commercial property in 2012 was that there was just no unbiased information out there. It was like this closed off society that if you didn't ask, you didn't know. Uh, and most people didn't know what to ask about commercial property. And it was very prohibitive for the everyday Australian. So most people who invested in, in, in commercial were high net worth individuals. But I came from a belief that if you're investing in residential, you should have another option in property. And that's obviously commercial. It fits the other half of the pie. And so when I started out with an education course, all I wanted to do was go around Australia and teach people how to invest in commercial. And then my clients or students from the course said to me, well, love your education, but can you find us a property that matches everything you've taught? So I thought, okay, well, let's go out there and see if I can find them some properties. So I started finding them some properties, uh, and this was 2017, and they loved it. They got their friends their family involved and introduced other people. So I thought, oh, my goodness, I started a business by default, and that's how the buyer's agency started. Okay. So um, when you started this course, were they primarily investors or were some people who actually wanted to buy a commercial property to run a business out of? No, they were all investors. So they're all mum and dad investors who have typically, you know, a couple of residential investments, but wasn't getting the cash flow they wanted from their investments. So they were looking for a cash flow strategy. So they came and learned about investing commercial, the ins and outs and the do's and don'ts, and then went away and invested in their own tenanted commercial property. So I already had the tenant operating a business in that premise. Hmm. So if you had to, and I, I know the answer to this question, but I, I, I would rather you do it because I'm sure you've talked about this before. What is the, the major difference between being a landlord of a residential property as opposed to being a landlord of a commercial property? So the fundamental difference is actually what your tenant pays for. That is the, the number one difference. So your commercial tenants pay for outgoings. And what that is, is usually your rates, your insurance, maybe strata, uh, and maybe some maintenance fees on the property. And, where, and they pay that on top of the rent they're paying you. Hmm. So therefore, there's less outgoings coming out of your own pockets. In residential, you as a landlord pay for everything. So what I like to say is if you are in the Sydney market or the Melbourne market at the moment for residential, you're really subsidising your tenant's lifestyle, whereas in commercial, your tenants are subsidising your lifestyle. So which one would you like? Yeah. Okay. Now, let's talk to the other part of investment because, you know, we know one part of being a landlord is receiving the rent, the income, um, but one of the big payoffs of, of the nastiness of having to deal with tenants is that often you get capital gain, better capital gain in residential and maybe less in commercial. That's a generalisation. Have you found that to be true? Well, I think capital gains can only be looked at in hindsight. So when you've taken the, the period and look at it, and what we look at is we bought my first restaurant, well, first commercial property, which happened to be a restaurant premise, about 55 square metres or so. So it's equivalent of a one bedroom apartment. We bought that in North Sydney, in Sydney, uh, in 2012. And we bought that for 360000 
So we sold that this year in June for a million and 50,000. So if you look at capital gains in the last nine years, the property has essentially almost tripled in time. Yeah. Yeah. So capital gains do work. Does that vary, do you think, um, suburb to suburb or... Do, do you think properties right around Sydney, say, for example, a commercial property in Penrith, would have had the same kind of capital gain as you experience in North Sydney? So capital gains in, in commercial works in two folds. It works with the rent going up. So as there's scarcity, so there's not enough places to rent, the rents get pushed up. And as a result, the commercial property value goes up. But also it goes up because of market so like in and that's the same as residential so as you see in residential the prices start to go up so does the commercial but typically what happens is commercial actually starts the cycle starts about two years after the residential cycle it's almost like people in residential starts investing in residential market starts to boom and then they realize they can't afford residential anymore then they jump into the commercial market and create a boom there so there is capital growth but it's just slower uh, in the uptake than a residential premise okay property now we've lived through a historically significant uh period um where we've seen the cbd properties really be suffer because of the lack of office workers and we've seen sub- suburban properties now having people and i know because when there's the odd time when i don't go to the office trying to get a cup of coffee in my my local suburban area i gotta wait i gotta queue up but in the city i walk straight in and get it you know Um, and so the values in the city must must be affected by the lack of workers but the values of commercial suburban strips where the shops are working all the time they must really have gone through the roof in recent times Oh, absolutely. So what we've seen is that uh, in suburbia, where we're talking out of city, in suburbia, strip shops have become the favourites. We're seeing anything that is Sydney fringe um, going into more your, a little bit of your regional areas. Those areas have probably in the last six months since we started really opening, gone up in value somewhere between 30 to 40%. It's just like a major jump. It's almost like collectively, People woke up in February and decided that, yes, commercial was the way. And then when people started to gain confidence, we saw that massive jump because there was that change of work, uh, change of work practices from the city into from home. But also I think that we're just learning a new way of work because the CBD is still going to be the CBD, right? It's taken a hit right now. So there's probably anywhere about 30 to 40% reduction in rent at the moment in Sydney CBD. Uh, and this is the same in Melbourne. We're seeing the same similar in Brisbane, less so, but similar in Brisbane. But that's just a moment in time. For an investor who can afford to hold in the CBD, five years from now, there'll be a reconfiguration. That will The value will come back and it will, and it will jump again. Because supply will slow down, and but demand will eventually pick up. And also, I guess some commercial properties in the city will become residential as well. Yeah, a lot of them will be a lot of the older buildings, uh, like the old post offices or the or even older hotels. Uh, they will get they will become residential. But also, you'll find the larger like we would have accounting firms and lawyer, lawyers' offices that would take a whole floor 
in Pitt Street or Castle Ray Street or one of those uh, iconic streets, but you'll find that they'll go to half a floor in the future and that will be taken up by other smaller tenants. So we will actually have people back in the CBD, but we would actually have a lot more tenants than we did before. Okay. Um, so your outlook for commercial property for the next year or so, um, and let's concentrate on the suburban areas because that's where people will be looking, particularly after they listen to you say what you said. Um, <laughs> What, what, what is your expectation? Do you, are you expecting steady growth in prices for commercial property? I'm expecting that from about June next year, uh, June, July next year, we're going to have a lot more confidence back in the market and we're going to see tenants signing up longer leases. So what we've had in the last two years is a tenant's market in terms of renting a premise. They can just walk into a, uh, to a landlord and say, I want three months off, like three months rent free, six months rent free, half rent for half for the first year, right? And the landlord are held to ransom. I think from June, July next year, that's going to change. They're going to be a lot more confidence in the market and tenants are going to start signing longer leases and we're going to come back to a more of a landlord you know, market where they can start to demand their prices, especially in suburbia, right? And we're going to see that there's going to be a steady, there's going to be steady growth next year in terms of commercial property prices but especially when that longer leases start to get signed and that confidence comes back in the second half of the year, we're going to see another jump in commercial property prices. Okay. Helen, because of your experience, what do you think are the big mistakes novices to commercial property make? What are the things that people need to look out for? The biggest mistake that a novice can make is buying the wrong returns in the wrong area. And, and I'm, and I say this because there's a lot of unscrupulous people out there. There's there's a lot of unbiased, not bias. There's a lot of biased information out there. But for example, I just illustrate this. For example, you buy in Sydney, and the returns are three to four percent in commercial property, right? And that's standard if you buy anywhere in Sydney. Most Sydney investors see that and they go, "Oh, if I get a five percent in Brisbane, I'm doing really well because I'm doing better than Sydney." But that's because you're looking at it from a Sydney point of view. And they go there and they buy at 5%. And what's happened is that they've overpaid mm. for the property. So they need to act like a local, even though they're not up there in that, and find someone, it doesn't have to be us, it can be someone local that they trust, that can give them the right returns in that area. Because Brisbane should be maybe at this time in the market for that particular property sit at six, not at five. Mm. But it's easy for them to dupe a southern investor. And, this, and I see this time and time again, especially in a market that's peaking. Okay. Um, rising interest rates, do you think that will affect commercial property at the same rate as it might residential property? I don't think so. Uh, the reason is that traditionally commercial property returns have always sat about 1% to 2%, depending whether you're buying in metro or regional, above the interest rate. So back in the time in 2012 when I first got into commercial, the interest rates were at 6% but we're buying to Sydney at 8%. So today people are buying to Sydney at 4%, but the interest rates at two. So it's still the same metrics exist. It's just the yields have changed and the returns have changed. Okay. Thanks for coming on the program. If people want to know more, what's your website? HelenTarrant.com or, or unicorn.com.au. Great. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.